Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hey, it's Sasha. Before we get to the show, I want to make a quick plug. It's a new year, and we have some new ways for you to connect with Reset. We're now on TikTok. So if you want to go behind the scenes of the show, dig deeper into our interviews, or you just want to see me bust a move with our producers, give us a follow at WBEZ underscore Reset. Again, that's WBEZ underscore Reset on TikTok. All right, on to the show. What do you think of when you think of self-care? Meditation? Going to therapy? Putting on a face mask? All or none of the above? It's confusing, right? Self-care can feel like a catch-all definition for anything that has to do with taking care of you. And in some ways, that's true. But today, we talk to two experts to find out what self-care truly means and how we can incorporate it into our routines. Matthias Roberts is a therapist, host of the Queerology podcast, and author of Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms. And Laura Vanderkam is a speaker and author of Tranquility by Tuesday, Nine Ways to Calm the Chaos. Okay, I want to start with the simplest but also most complicated question. What does self-care mean to you, Matthias? Yeah, self-care for me means what can I actually do to care for myself, which sounds like somewhat of an obvious statement. <laughs> but, but I think it goes far deeper than just like buying a new thing or taking a bubble bath. It, it actually means getting into the nitty gritty of what care actually means. And, and that can be really difficult sometimes. What about you, Laura? What comes to mind? Self-care. Well, to- totally agree that it's not just bubble baths. And I think it gets a bad reputation because people think that's what it is. Um, But I think it's about aligning your time in a way that you are spending time on things that are meaningful to you and that you have things in your life that you are looking forward to. And when you are interested in your own life, then you are truly caring for yourself. So you want to set up your schedule with that in mind. Matthias, where did the concept of self-care actually come from? Because I know that we've been hearing it a lot more lately, but that wasn't always the case. Yeah, you know, I am personally not sure, so I I may have to punt that question to someone else. (laughs) Um, But you're right. I think it has been coming up all over the place, um, and it's gotten very popular in a commercialized way that that is really fascinating to me. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Laura? Yeah, I mean, I think it was originally like a medical term, like you could care for yourself at home after recuperating from something as opposed to care from a physician or nurse or something like that. But it's definitely evolved. I mean, it's something that people can, you know, tell people to do. As It sounds like an easy way to make life feel better. And, and so obviously that's an attractive concept. Like if there's one simple thing you can do to make life feel better, like who doesn't want that? Um, but when we explore it a little bit more deeply, I mean, it, it, it's helpful just to think about ways that we can change our lives to feel better about our lives. And, and if there are practical ways to do that, then that certainly behooves us to do that. Yeah. Well, back to the point you brought up, Matthias, you know, the self-care, it does feel like a marketing term, right? It's a, a way to get us to buy these products and solve probably systemic issues. So how can you tell what's real and what's consumerism when it comes to self-care? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that one of the first steps is to really try to get clear with ourselves about what we're actually wanting. And, and so this idea of if I just have 
a new candle, if I just have a different kind of bubble bath, and if I buy that, then my life will get better. Uh, that's not probably true. <laughs> but if, if we can start to get clear about wh- why do I need care and, and what might actually help increase the amount of care in my life, then the bubble bath might be a part of that. Um, but we're actually getting really clear about what our motivations are and, and what we're actually needing. Um, so I, I don't think commercialism or buying things is bad. But buying is not going to fix, if that makes sense. Yeah, you've you've said specifically this is more of a, a Band-Aid form of care, right? Yes. 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 I, I, yes. I, I think Band-Aid care is a really good way of talking about it. Again, if we just think buying is going to fix, that is more like putting a Band-Aid on the actual problem. Yes. Do you feel that it's women being targeted by this? Like, Is, is self-care seen as something that men can do? I, I think it's less popular to talk about self-care with men. I, I certainly think it is something men can do, but but I think pri- the target audience is primarily women, at least what I see, um, which is also fascinating. Anything to add, Laura? Yeah, well, I think that you know things like bubble baths come across as, as, as easy solutions, um, and partly because they can be marketed. But But one of the best ways that people can practice more active self-care is putting things like hobbies into their lives or spending more time with friends. And those are often things that women in particular find very challenging to do, to make space for hobbies outside of work and family or to get together with friends, mm-hmm. you know, spend time on that instead of work and family. And and so obviously in many ways, the bubble bath seems like an easier solution. You could take a bubble bath whenever, whereas you know, getting together with friends involves the planning and involves making it happen. And, and oftentimes, you know, women don't feel like they can take that space. So, yeah, the, the, the bubble baths and stuff seem like an easier solution. Yeah. Well, you write and talk a lot about time management, Laura. Can time management and organization, can, that, can those be forms of self-care? I think they certainly can because the best time management habits make us spend more time on the things that matter to us and are meaningful and enjoyable to ourselves and ideally less time on the things that aren't. And I, I found that certain time management habits do make people feel like they have more self-care in their lives. Like, for instance, one of my favorite things to tell people is to take one night for you. And I don't mean just take a bubble bath, but spend some time, a couple hours every week on something that is not work and not family. And ideally, maybe even make a commitment to something like, you know, play on a softball team or have a regular get-together with friends. But something that you know is there for you. And if you organize your schedule around making this possible, you know, you will feel like like life, you know, is a lot better, like you are having more active self-care in your life. The World Health Organization says this about self-care. It's, quote, the ability of individuals, families and communities to promote health, prevent disease, maintain health and to cope with illness and disability with or without the support of a health care provider. Can you talk about how community fits into the self-care conversation, Laura? Oh, certainly community is, is part of it. And, and again, one of the reasons the, the bubble bath becomes a, a popular topic of this is because it, it's just you, right? Like you don't have to deal with anyone else or be, you know, ask anyone else to join you or anything else like that. It's just, you know, you can do it on your own or your own time is very flexible. Whereas a lot of the, the sort of ways that we are 
truly feeling like life is enjoyable and meaningful do involve other people. And I know those are the things that are often hardest for women to get involved with because it is away from family responsibilities and household responsibilities. But, uh, you know, having things in the larger world that you care about and being part of an active community and feeling like other people support you um, is, is definitely a way to feel cared for. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Self-care is probably a term that you have heard a lot, maybe to the point that you roll your eyes at this point when you hear it. But regardless of what you call it, everyone does it one way or another. So with us now to talk about impactful approaches to self-care are Laura Vanderkam, who's author of Tranquility by Tuesday and Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done, and Matthias Roberts, who's host of the Queerology podcast and author of Beyond Shame. Matthias, as a therapist, what do you re- recommend to, to clients who want to incorporate self-care into their lives and they want to do it more regularly? Yeah, well, I think what Laura is talking about it is so important. I, I talk to my clients about what does it mean to create a life that you don't have to escape from? Because um, I feel like so often we see self-care as a form of escape, a little break from life. And, and so when to incorporate more self-care into our lives, I think it takes a lot of work of actually looking at our lives and, and figuring out what is my life? <laughs> what am I doing that I don't want to be doing or is not giving me energy? And are there ways to adjust that? So, so I see it on a much deeper level, less about what more can we do <laughs> and more about can we get clear about what our lives are and what shifts we might need to make to, to create a life that is more enjoyable. That will naturally lead to more caring feelings, feeling like we don't have to escape from something. Yeah. Well, tell us how you personally practice self-care, Matthias. What does it look like for you? Yeah, for, for me, it, it looks like prioritizing social time. I, I'm a pretty strong introvert, but, but I realize the more time I spend alone, <laughs> the less happy I am. And mm. and so certainly I, I have my alone time. But, but I've learned I have to schedule in time with friends, time with community in order to feel like I'm, I'm enjoying my life, that I'm getting something out of my life. Because if I just spend time alone, which is my impulse, I, I will continue a descent into unhappiness. Yeah, well, <laughs> so good that you know that about yourself. Uh, Laura, what does it look like for you, self-care? So I, yeah, I sing in a choir, um, which has cool. rehearsals every Thursday night. So every Thursday night, I go mm-hmm. for two hours and sing with a community of other people. And it's fun to make music, obviously. I, I enjoy that for its own sake. But even more so, it gives me something to look forward to during the week. Like if I had a rough day on Thursday, knowing I've got this thing coming up um, it makes me feel like life is good. You know, I have stuff I am looking forward to. It's a night where I'm not dealing with all the kids stuff uh, after dinner, right? Yes. Like it's, it's a night that I... I'm not thinking about those other things when I'm focusing on something that I find um, enjoyable for its own sake. And, you know, it's not easy to make a commitment to be somewhere for a couple hours every Thursday night, but I find it worth it. And, and, and making a commitment is often what makes it happen because with something like, you know, taking a, a bubble bath or lighting candles, that can happen whenever. And so if somebody else wants you to do something else, 
you'll probably not do it, right? You know, yeah. your boss wants you to work late. You're not going to be like, well, I have to take my bubble bath or your kid wants you to drive her to the mall. Your, your bathtub's not going anywhere, right? So, <laughs> right? Whereas if you make a commitment to something, you will do it. And then you will reap the benefits of that more active form of self-care. Well, I want to get both your opinions on this ongoing debate about how technology impacts our emotional health and our ability to do exactly what we're talking about, taking care of ourselves. What thoughts do you have about the relationship between mental health and technology? You first, Matthias. Yeah, you know, I I think as research continues to come out, we realize more and more that tech is not great for our mental health. Of course, there are ways to use it in a way that is positive, but I think being very aware of how much time we are spending can be a form of that active self-care that Laura is talking about. Um, getting out into the world, interacting with, with objects, with people, <laughs> um, that can actually change and, and, and help our emotional well-being more so than being in front of a screen. Um, because I think being very mindful about how we use tech can be so important in, in our kind of overall self-care um, ethos. Do you have any advice, Laura, on, on how to create a healthier relationship with technology? So one of my favorite things to tell people about technology, there's nothing wrong with spending a little bit of time on, on you know, social media and online. It could be a little treat. I enjoy reading blogs and seeing what friends post and, and all that good stuff. But you don't want it to have it, that be all your leisure time, you know, particularly if you have a very busy life. If you're working, you're raising a family, you don't have a ton of leisure time in the first place. So you probably don't want to spend the bulk of it online and scrolling around mm-hmm. when there's so many other things that, that you might want to do. But of course, it's you know very tempting and it's very easy to, to use tech. So one of my favorite ideas is to try to do a little bit of more effortful forms of fun first and then switch over to screen. So, you know, you find yourself picking up your phone. So like, I'll just read an ebook for two minutes first and then I can switch over to scrolling around to whatever I want. Or if you're going to sit down to, for a longer scrolling session or, or watching something, you know, streaming videos, say, well, why don't I just call a friend first for, for five minutes, check in, and then I can, I can watch whatever I want. But by switching the automatic order, you get to have both kinds of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that more active fun is definitely self-care. So, so that's, a, that's something to try. I love that. I know that you've also talked in the past about mommy guilt, right? The, the feeling of not being the perfect mom. I can relate to that uh, as a mother. Uh, any tips you have for, for moms when it comes to self-care and for dads? Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's always the, the cliche about the oxygen mask of plays of putting your own on first, and, and that's fine. But I, I think it helps to realize that, you know, the world will, in fact, function without us. Um, you know, if you take two hours to do something that is interesting for you, keeps you interested and engaged in your own life, the world keeps spinning. Like, things will not fall out apart in two hours. Your kids will do something else. I mean, as long as somebody is, you know, competent of caring for young kids, then they'll be okay. I mean, maybe the, the dishes won't get done in your absence, but so what? You know, it's, it's okay. Like, it'll be one night. And it's, it's not the end of the world. So when we recognize that the world does, in fact, go on spinning, sometimes that allows us to step back a little bit and be like, you know, it will be okay. Yeah. Well, before I let you both go, I want to hear from you just some, some summarizing thoughts. Why self-care is important for maybe the person listening who's still not convinced that that's something that they need to take time for. We'll start with you, Matthias. 
Yeah, you know, I, I would I would swap the word recharging or rest for self care for for someone who is not convinced, and and I think those words make it far easier <laughs> to get on board with this idea of we need time to recharge, we need time to reset, and if we're actually using our time, our self care time to recharge, to reset, and not as an escape, then we're getting something out of it. Then we're improving our lives so that we can get back into things and, and keep going. What about you, Laura? Yeah, we can't make more time, but we can boost our energy levels. And when we feel like we're more energized, it feels like we've made more time. You know, we can do more with the time we have. Um, we feel less tired. And so, yeah, if you, if you think of self-care as ways you can energize yourself and look for ways to put things into your life that are energizing, life will feel entirely different. And, yeah, I want that for everyone listening to this. We have been talking with Laura Vandekam, who's a speaker and author of several books on time management, productivity, and self-care, including Tranquility by Tuesday, and Matthias Roberts, therapist and host of the Queerology podcast and author of Beyond Shame. Laura and Matthias, thank you so much. Now, occasionally, self-care can feel like something you do only after you feel exhausted and burned out. But does it need to be that way? We're going to keep the thread of our previous discussion going and learn how to practice preemptive self-care and how workplaces can create cultures that promote it. Joining us is Jonathan Malesic, author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. John, I'm going to start with the same question I asked our previous guests. What does self-care look like for you? Oh, for me, it often can look like taking a you know, taking a long bike ride uh, by myself, uh, I, I off, often with a podcast uh, on in my earphones. And nice. yeah, just it gets me so much out of the, you know, the the headspace of, of stress and accomplishment and, and knowing that I have nothing to prove to anyone is it, really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Self-care, it really does feel like such an individual pursuit, right? Something that you do for yourself. So what would it look like for it to be more of a collective endeavor. Right. Well, and I think that that's, that's the key is that self-care is good in and of itself. And sometimes you just need that time in order to, uh, you know, get away from whatever is causing you stress and to, to really, you know, do something that you enjoy. But ultimately I think workers need something much better than self-care. I mean, they need, more reasonable workloads. They need more reasonable and predictable schedules. They need more regular time off uh, so that it doesn't feel, you know, so, so there isn't this just acute felt need uh, to just kind of break away from the workplace. Yeah. Well, you know what I do for self-care? Self I sleep. <laughs> Is that <laughs> weird? <laughs> I'm like, I just take, I close my eyes and I'll, I'll time it too. I'll just take like an hour nap randomly if I get a chance to in the middle of the day, but that works for me. That helps me sort of shut everything down and take a moment to just rest. Sure. Yeah. I'm a big nap fan uh, <laughs> myself. So uh, We've got a comment from Jacob who says self-care can be a lot of things, but it usually comes in the form of a burnout cycle. So what's the relationship, John, between burnout culture and self-care? Yeah, well, burnout culture is just this, not only the constant stress that we feel from our jobs, but also it's the sense that, 
you know, burnout is almost uh, a sign of something positive, you know, like if you are burning out, then you must have been on fire. You know, you must be an ideal worker. And I think that, yeah, that there is this cycle between, oh, I'm going to, you know, really work as hard as I can. I'm going to really grind on this project and then I'm going to collapse and I'm going to attempt, you know, forms of self-care to try to recover. And I think that that cycle is is really unsustainable. Mm. Uh, and, you know, just to come back to this idea that, you know, workers need something better so that they don't burn out. And, and one thing that they need, I think that we need to replace that idea that, you know, that we live to work, that we prove ourselves through work and that hard work is the ultimate sign of virtue. Well, you said workers need something better. What responsibility do workplaces have to employees to, to create more opportunities for self-care and for rest? Oh, a ton. Um, I think that the, the workplaces bear most of the responsibility. Um, sometimes self-care, you know, individualized self-care may be necessary because there aren't other people who are looking out for you. Uh, you don't have a reasonable workload. You don't have supervisors who are attuned to this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's workplaces are the true causes of burnout. They're the ones who are setting the working conditions, setting the the workloads and the expectations uh, that are so often un uh, unmanageable and and unreasonable. And so, the workplaces need to pay closer attention to, you know, when workers say they're burning out, when there's a lot of absenteeism, for instance, in a workplace, recognize that that is very likely a, pro a sign that there's a problem in the workplace itself and not necessarily with the worker. Do you think that burnout in general is unavoidable? Uh I, no, I don't think so. Um, it, it can certainly feel that way. Um, but yeah, and, and in fact, it's a lot easier, I think, to to prevent burnout, uh, at least on the institutional and, you know, kind of uh, employer-wide scale, than it is to heal burnout once it's started. Um, burnout tends to get worse with time. Um unless there's a, a serious change is made to workers' conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, prevention is is the key. Uh, but we have to remember it's not just up to the worker themselves. Yes, you know, it's possible, like, some workers do genuinely go further than they need to. You know, they um, – some workers are very bad at setting limits for themselves. But more of the responsibility – comes from the employers who are the ones setting the parameters of the job and, and providing the resources to fulfill it. And when there's a gap between those, burnout is more likely. So we've been talking about uh, work-life balance on the show recently. How can we set boundaries between ourselves and work? Yeah, I think that the, the main thing is that it's really hard to do that yourself. Um, and, you know, we, we've all heard the advice about, um, you know, uh, turning off your email or not checking your email or, or something like that off hours, but that only goes so far if it's just up to you. Uh, if instead it's a norm, 
within your company that people are not uh, sending emails after hours, if, you know, people are not on Slack or whatever other, you know, kind of company-wide messaging system after hours, then it becomes easier to set boundaries. Um, if you're the only one, then you're just you're just kind of weird, and maybe you're even viewed as you know potentially a problem. You know, yeah. you're not performing, you're not dedicated enough. Um, but if everyone kind of sets those norms, then it becomes easier for anyone uh, to 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 set those boundaries too. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we've been talking all about self care, what makes it difficult, different approaches. And now we're talking about the connection between self-care and burnout. With us is Jonathan Malesic, who's author of The End of Burnout. And congrats, by the way, John. I'm hearing that it's been, what, almost a year since your book was released. Yeah, it's been, I think, exactly a year tomorrow. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So Serena Williams, right, she shared something recently. I think it's so relevant to the conversation that we're having. She said, quote, I'm currently allowing myself to be tired allowing myself to relax, allowing myself to just be. It's harder than I ever imagined. I've never allowed myself to do any of that before, end quote. This was something that she she tweeted. What do you think about that, John? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really an, an amazing quote, uh, you know, particularly to hear from her, you know, at a point, uh, at this point in her career. Um, I mean, this when... is the, the greatest, one of the greatest athletes of all time, talking about how hard right. it is for her to get rest. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that in in the kind of, I mean, she's obviously an incredibly competitive person um, who has tremendous, you know, not just physical, but, you know, mental and emotional gifts, you know, to be able to win, you know, as many championships as she has and to be at the top of her game for, for decades. Uh, and, you know, she... Right. In, when you are that competitive and you're surrounded by that, you know, such competitive uh, people that, you know, she is facing on the court, it's it, it can feel, I'm sure, like, well, rest is optional. You know, yeah. if I rest, then I'm at a disadvantage. And, you know, that that may be the kind of mindset that it takes to be, you know, a number one tennis player for years and years. Right. Um most of us are not that, however. Um, you know, we we are not sort of called uh to be Serena Williams. And, you know, that's that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, my my worry is that that ultra competitive mindset is is often seen as the norm. Well, it's like, oh well, Serena can do it, you know. Why can't you? It's like, well, because she's, you know, like she's right. she's exceptional, you know, shall we say. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, and even as, as you know, regular folks, <laughs> we can still relate, right? We've got this comment also from Ava who says, self-care is hard because I start thinking about how I'm not being productive. So instead of resting, I just start panicking. That's normal too, right, John? Um, it's, it's unfortunately maybe a little too, uh, you know, too normalized. Um, but right. I mean, it, if you are to the point where you are breaking down, panicking, burning out, then something has already gone wrong, uh, in the past, you know, you've been in conditions that are not conducive to you thriving for a long time. And so, 
something needs to change. Mm -hmm. um, if this is happening at work, then, and probably, you know, in many cases it is, then something's got to change in your workplace. Uh, you know, you need to have a different workload or, or different responsibilities or, uh, you know, more time off or, or something like that. And in extreme cases, you may simply need a new job. Well, speaking of, of the workplace, we do live in a culture where your personhood is almost defined by your occupation. So what needs to happen for that to change? Yeah, I think that we need to begin to recognize that each of us has full, uh, you know, irreducible human dignity before we ever go to work or if we never go to work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think like each one of us was once a, a newborn infant and we were loved unconditionally. Uh, no one expected us to to sort of earn our keep. Um, and the the funny thing is that as people grow up, it seems like we start to view them differently. Think, okay, well, you know, uh, you 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 need to to prove yourself. You need to prove yourself through your work to show that you are worthwhile. To show that you deserve uh, the you know the the goods that come from our social life. And so I think that we need to recognize that we have that dignity before we ever go to work. And then we need to start thinking about, well, how can we demand that employers honor that dignity in the working conditions? Yeah. We've talked about Band-Aid forms of self-care, right? Things like, you know, going shopping or just doing a little skincare, But those aren't lasting solutions to burnout. You've written in The Atlantic that the same goes for mental health days. Why'd you say that? Yeah, I said that because it, the, the language of mental health, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, um, stay in bed today or go for a long walk or bike ride or something like that. Yeah. Um, as, I'm taking a mental health day. And that sounds like an, you know, that sounds like a good thing, right? And it sounds like you're really caring for your well-being, but I think that often, I, I think that in fact, the, the language of mental health can be a way to devalue time off that's just taken for its own sake. Um, we shouldn't have to justify time off through mental health. Um, we should just, you know, be able to justify time off because we need it. Because we need it. Um, yeah, I like that. We deserve it. Yeah. Well, I'm almost out of time, but I would love for you to suggest a starting point for, for folks listening who want to build self-care into their lives and avoid burnout. Where do they begin? I think that the, the simplest place to begin is by talking with family, uh, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. Talk about what do you expect from work? What does a good job look like to you? And what are the obstacles to that? What is getting in the way of you uh, flourishing in in your job? Um, and I think that, you know, we need to change the narrative. And the way that you change the narrative is by, well, first figuring out what the narrative is and then re-narrating it uh, with the people around us. Jonathan Malesic is author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Thank you so much, John, and congrats again. Thank you, Sasha. Uh, yeah, it's it's been a pleasure. 
This episode of Reset was produced by Micah Yason, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather. If you're looking for more tips and discussions on living mindfully, consider subscribing to our podcast. We recently did a whole series on Black mental health that I think you'll find enlightening. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.